0: Welcome to Mid-South Viewpoint. I'm Byron Tyler. Today, I want to turn our attention to service. Service for God's kingdom right here in our city. Don and Linda Gilbert started a ministry in the Orange Mound community of Memphis called Kingdom Community Builders. Recently, on a Sunday morning at High Point Church, Don shared this journey to start the work. Now, I don't want to say much more except to ask that you please listen with an open heart. Listen for what God may be calling you to impacting this city by being intentional and driven by a passion for the gospel. Here's Don Gilbert.
1: It's an honor to be with you and to share about a topic that has captivated my heart over the last seven years as I have intentionally tried to live out service. I worked as a pastor at Central Church for 29 years, started off as a youth pastor, did some other responsibilities, and served as director of ministries with Ernie Fry. I'd had hands-on responsibility for local and foreign missions. In 2013, I moved my family from Germantown to Orange Mound, Tennessee. In 2014, I left Central to begin a nonprofit called Kingdom Community Builders. If you're not familiar with Orange Mound, it's right near the campus of University of Memphis. It was a community that started in May 1890. It was the first African American community where African Americans could purchase their own land. And build their own shotgun houses. It had its heyday comparable to Harlem. You could say Harlem and Orange Mound, and people would understand the renaissance that you're talking about, the self sufficient community that was present. And then in the 80s, some things changed. A couple factories closed, crack cocaine came in, mass incarceration, African American families being separated by prison, and then some black flight out of the area. So Orange Mound is a community now that's like a typical inner city zip code that has all the woes of the inner city and a lot of disinvestment that takes place. Kingdom Community Builders came into Orange Mound. We have four areas of focus. The first one is our neighborhood. So what does it mean to be a strategic neighbor in the place where we live? Second is schools. How can we be a resource to schools? Most of our students are behind. We are between 10 to 15% on reading level by the time they finish third grade. We also work with churches. So I know 25 churches and pastors in Orange Mound. I've been there multiple times. And so I work with churches to do outreach as I come alongside them. And then community organizations. So what can we do as a community to better strengthen our community and how can we work together? So I serve on the Orange Mound Arts Council Board. I'm also a part of the new Neighborhood Development Corporation for Orange Mound and involved with a number of other organizations. We've lived in Orange Mound for seven years now. We moved from Germantown into the community in order to do ministry. And we call this relocation. We have a scriptural basis for this. John 1 14, in the message, it says the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And we saw the glory with our own eyes in the one of a kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. So you get this sense in relocation, it goes along with incarnation, that Christ came from heaven to come down to earth to live as a man and to live among us. So relocation is that idea of going into a community to live among them. This is what John Perkins calls relocation. It's a calling. Not everyone has a calling to go to Orange Mound. But my wife and I felt that that's where the Lord was leading us. You go into a new community, you get to know the people. We shop locally. We go to the hardware store, to the super low. I go to community events. I meet with people in the community, new friendships, all the things that you do to get to know the people in your community. It was important for us to move to do that. When you come into a community and they don't know you, You have to have that relational capital that says that I care. My wife and I moved after our kids were in college and that was helpful. We did not face the problem of would we send our kids to school in the public school system, which the answer to that would be no, because we want our kids to have the best education they could and that would not have been our school system. But the people in my neighborhood, the parents that I'm around, They have that same desire that their kids get the same, the best education that could be provided, but they don't have the finances to make that affordable. When we moved into Orange Mound, we came across a number of barriers, what I call invisible barriers. One of those barriers was this mistrust. Who are you? Why are you here? What are you doing here? How long will you be here? What are you getting from moving here? So these are areas of mistrust that we continue to work through in our community. There hasn't been a white evangelical church embedded in that sense. The people in the community wonder where is the evangelical church? Where's the white suburban church? Do they not care about the issues that we face and their experience of the church has been Turkey Christians that come in and bring a Turkey and then the next holiday bring a Turkey and then you don't see them for a while. Or what we call okie dokie. So here's a church that'll come in and say, hey, we want to go into your community and we want to do an outreach and show you how to do evangelism and give stuff away and then share the Lord and get people saved. People will come. There's some free stuff and they'll go, oh, got some stuff for us. Okie dokie. And then they walk away. And so that perception is that the church really doesn't get it or the church doesn't care. And so that's what happens in our community. To share my story and how I got involved in inner city ministry, have to go back a little bit. I became a Christian when I was a senior in college. From there, I went to seminary at a place called Candler School of Theology. It was a Methodist school, liberal. I didn't know that until I moved to Memphis. As a new Christian, here's a seminary. I came to Memphis and ran into all types of evangelical strains that I just didn't know existed. Somebody asked me if I was saved, born again. I thought, what does that mean? Never heard that in seminary. Tells you something. But I got evangelical roots in Memphis and began to understand the gospel. Right around 2010, I began to get involved with the Urban Summit, a conference put on by Larry Lloyd with Memphis Leadership Foundation with City Leadership. It was a conference about how you engage the community you live in. So we talked about Immigration. We talked about incarceration. We talked about education. We talked about racial reconciliation. And so those were things that awakened in me this conversation about what am I doing as a disciple to have an impact upon the city where I live. I began to read by John Perkins about everything he wrote. I looked at other authors and I began to understand that there were some things that I was missing. Larry Lloyd taught a class in prospectus, which is a missions class to change you from the ordinary to the extraordinary. It's a great class. And he came in and he talked about a theology for the city. And that's when I first heard those words to really grapple with what that means. For me personally, I have always been biblically conservative, but very much engaged with the community outside the church doors. And I began to look at Isaiah 61 as a foundational passage for my understanding of ministry, of what it means to proclaim the gospel, as well as what it means to take the gospel to the streets. So let's take a look at Isaiah 61. We're going to see it in Luke four, where Jesus is now speaking. Jesus returned to Galilee after the temptation in the wilderness with the power of the spirit and news about him spread everywhere. He taught in the Jewish meeting places and everyone praised him. Jesus went back to Nazareth where he had been brought up And as usual, he went to the meeting place on the Sabbath, and when he stood up to read from scriptures, he was given the book of Isaiah the prophet, and he opened it. The Lord's spirit has come to me because he has chosen me to tell the good news to the poor. The Lord has sent me to announce freedom for prisoners, to give sight to the blind, to free everyone who suffers, to say, this is the year the Lord has chosen. Jesus closed the book He handed it back to the man in charge and he sat down and the people looked at Jesus and he said, what you have just heard has come true today. The context for this in those meeting places, you didn't necessarily have a speaker. They would invite rabbis or teachers to come up. So Jesus was in Nazareth, a place where he grew up. And this was a message that he chose. He picked up the scroll. It's not clear if the scroll was already on Isaiah 61 or if it was to Isaiah and he turned to 61. But he turned there intentionally and then spoke these words that the Lord's spirit has come upon me. He's chosen me or in other translations that says he anointed me. And so what we need to know about this passage is it was a Messianic passage talking about the future, the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus grabs that passage and he says, the spirit of the Lord has come upon me. We know at the baptism of Jesus that the spirit descended and came upon Jesus. But he's going back to this Old Testament text saying, the spirit has come upon me and anointed me and chosen me. And he was now beginning to lay the case that he would claim to be that Messiah. And he has anointed me to proclaim the good news. And now Jesus is going to tell us what some of that good news is and where it goes. He says that the good news is going to go to the poor. Now, does that mean the physically poor or the spiritually poor? We know from Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. We know that the poor there meant those who are physically poor, but also those who are spiritually poor. And we have this sense that as we come to God, that we are spiritually poor, that in terms of our salvation, we are bankrupt. We are destitute. We have nothing to earn our salvation. So it's a gift that God gives us. And I go to God thinking, I have nothing to offer you. And yet out of your grace, out of your kindness, out of your mercy, you come and restore relationship with me. And I've not earned it. He comes to give that message to that poor. He comes to announce freedom for prisoners. Was that a reference for captives that have been captives before? Is that a reference to people in prison? Is that a reference to symbolic prisons? but he came to bring freedom from where we live and then to give sight to the blind. Yes, Jesus healed a blind person, but then Jesus also said to the Pharisees, woe to you because you see and you don't see. You hear and you don't hear. Now we have that sense that there is something that Jesus is bringing to those who have been spiritually blind all these years, all the years of Moses and all the years of the prophets that they didn't get who God was. And now God was sending his son at this time to say, we're no longer gonna work on on a monarchy where there's a king. We're going to go back to this idea of theocracy where God is in charge. And God has sent his son to bring freedom to the captives. And if you suffer, Jesus had good news for you that there is a God that has come that cares about your suffering." You see in this passage that Jesus, one, comes to proclaim the good news, and then you see him showing compassion, that he's concerned about the poor and the blind, those in prison, those who suffer. And he just doesn't come to preach good news and walk away. He comes to restore and change things. Oh, he says to the poor, I'm gonna be with you in the midst of your poverty. He says to those who are blind, I'm gonna give you spiritual sight. For those of you in prison, I'm gonna give you freedom for those of you who suffer, I'm going to restore some of those areas of suffering for you. And then behind that all is this idea that he's going to correct the way things have been. He's going to correct things that have not been right nor just. He's going to confront injustice. So Jesus grew up on the scriptures, which would have been the Old Testament, and he would have been intimately familiar with the prophets the major prophets the minor prophets Isaiah Jeremiah you pick up the book of Isaiah and you can't help but see the constant concern for injustice that was in the land not just in the land from foreigners but in the land from the own people from the Jewish people from the priests and the things that they did in the temple and so Jesus comes in the midst of this good news to say I'm going to name injustice and I'm going to correct it i've always had a heart for foreign missions been around the world two times. My wife was not the same. She wasn't willing to go to another country, but she was willing to go to downtown Memphis, into the inner city. She worked at White Station. She worked Young Life. So we both had a heart for the inner city. This was a move that we both decided that we would make. My friend, Noel Castellanos has a book called Where the Cross Meets the Street. And in this book, he sets out a theology for how we as disciples are to view our city. So the first part covers the word incarnation. It's that idea that Jesus has come from heaven into the world to move into the hood, our hood, maybe my hood in Orange Mound, your neighborhood, to move in and to live among us. And by living among us, he's able to listen to the people. He's able to hear the needs of the people. When I'm an Orange Mound, I've been exposed to things that I never would have considered, Never would have thought about what it's like to have bedbugs in your house, what it's like to have your lights turned off, what it's like to have a person in prison, what it's like to hear gunshots on a regular basis, what it's like in elementary school to have somebody that you know that's been shot. When Jesus comes to live with us, to be close to us, the word proximity, and to walk alongside of us as a servant leader. There is incarnation, but there's also proclamation and formation. Part of proclamation is taking and making disciples. And that's what we do in the church. But following incarnation and proclamation and the spiritual formation is compassion. It's a demonstration. It's the gospel demonstrated in word and deed. And Jesus was full of compassion. If you think through to the good Samaritan, you know the story where he's out on the road and he sees this man that's beat up on the side of the road. And the good Samaritan, who is not Jewish, stops to help him. And so from that parable, we learn what it means to be a good neighbor and what we learn what it means to be neighborly, that you care about others. It's interesting in that story that it was the Levite and the priest who were too busy to show compassion to those who weren't part of the church people. We know Jesus lived a life of compassion. The best stories we have are Jesus interacting one-on-one With the woman caught in adultery in John 8. With the prostitute crying at his feet, wiping his feet with her tears and her hair. With Jesus who would go to that hated tax collector and bring him back into a relationship with God. With Jesus who would hear the bells that would say, I'm a leper, go away. And Jesus who would go touch that leper. Jesus who preached, who taught and then went out into the villages to heal, showed that compassion. We start with the incarnation of Christ coming to live among us, proclaiming the gospel, becoming mature disciples, showing compassion. We go to restoration and development. A key verse that I want to show you here is Jeremiah 29, 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now the welfare comes from shalom. And shalom is a word that has tremendous rich meaning. Shalom means peace and harmony and completeness and prosperity and welfare and tranquility and permanence. It's a word that means flourishing. Go back to Jeremiah 29, 7, and it says, but seek the welfare, seek the flourishing of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its flourishing, You will find your welfare. And the context for Jeremiah 29, 7 is the people were taken from captivity to Jerusalem to Babylon. A long trip there. They were going to that city as exiles and slaves. And there were false prophets who said, oh, the Lord's anger will be over. You'll be back in Jerusalem before you know it. And Jeremiah steps in and says, no, the Lord's anger will be 70 years. 70 years. And then you'll return And when you return to that city, it's going to have to be rebuilt. We get to Ezra. Let's rebuild the temple. Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, who goes back with his heart broken for the city and goes to the king. I'm torn up because my city lies in ruins. And so the king sends Nehemiah back with resources, says rebuild the city. And so here, Nehemiah goes back into the city and he finds a city that's been destroyed by fire. The temple's been ruined. Everything's been knocked down. Now he has to rebuild it. He's going to rebuild the wall, which is going to provide protection and safety. He's going to go inside the city and say, what do we need to flourish? Well, we're going to have to make sure we have agriculture. We're going to have to get water. We're going to have to be able to produce our food. We're going to have to have roads to get where we need to go. We're going to have to do some infrastructure within the city. It doesn't say that, but how can your city flourish if you don't have those things? And so the community worked together to do those things. They rebuilt the temple so that it could be the center and pride of the city. And so there's an Old Testament example of Nehemiah coming to build and to restore the community so that its walls built in the center of worship, it could thrive once again. Following restoration and development is this idea of injustice. We live with broken systems. Some have said we have irredeemably broken systems. If you're an immigrant in the United States, you know we need immigration reform. If you're in the prison system, if you're a teenager in the juvenile justice system, we know that we need reform. If you're in our education system and you're not reading on third grade level, by the time you finish third grade, they are building a prison bed for you, the school to prison pipeline. And in my community, 10% of our kids are on reading level. Where are those kids going? What are they going to do? We know they don't have jobs. We know that they don't in our community have a pathway to own a home, the number one way to build your wealth. So we have broken systems. We have to address those systems. This is an idea of why we come to serve. We come incarnationally to bring the good news of the gospel. We come to make disciples. We come to bring the cross to the streets. This is what disciples do. We proclaim the gospel. We go out and show compassion. We build and develop. We look at injustice. We build for the shalom of the community. And this is what the Messiah came to do. This is the mission statement of Jesus to bring good news to those who are suffering, to bring hope. The gospel is the hope for women with unplanned pregnancies. Thank you to Life Choices. The gospel is the hope for the immigrant that comes into the country looking to thrive. Thank you, Sukasa. Oh, the gospel is for the homeless on our streets. Thank you, Memphis Union Mission. The gospel is for those who are disadvantaged, refugees, those seeking asylum from danger in their countries. Thank you, Asha's Refuge. Isaiah 61, this idea of the cross to the streets, Christian community development practices have influenced the core of what we do at Kingdom Community Builders. So what does that look like for us? It means for us that we're proclaiming the gospel. We're sharing it. Our tutors have that freedom to build a relationship week after week with our kids pre-COVID to share the gospel. We have large group events. We take our kids to church retreats. We demonstrate the gospel. We demonstrate compassion. We're meeting the needs of the people in our community. We have taken an abandoned building and started an art gallery. We took an abandoned lot and cleaned it up and are in process of making that a community space, what we call a pocket park. I'm involved in confronting injustice, talking, looking at the disparities, the inequities, and what can we do to address those things without violence, having conversations on racial reconciliation, becoming more immersed in those issues. What happens if we don't serve? There's a book called The Externally Focused Quest that asks the question, what would happen if your church disappeared? Would people in the community know that you're gone? Would people in the city know that you're gone? Would they lament Would they wail because your church has gone? If we as a church don't serve, then we'll have no impact upon our community. For you see, the church, we are the chosen ones. We're the ones to do the work of proclaiming the good news and demonstrating what it looks like. We're not holy huddles. We don't come in here to hide from culture. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. God's equipped us, Ephesians 4, he's equipped us to do the work of the ministry. And the church, along with government, along with parachurch, can work for the shalom of our communities. We take Christ to the streets, not to do a service project. It's not to do a service project and gain points. It's because we as the body of Christ have a calling to serve and to impact the world we live in. I could bring somebody from Orange Mount. They would hear a gospel-centered message. They could accept Christ, but then I'd take them home. And we will go back into substandard housing, substandard education, substandard economic opportunities. We are not called to just save people and then send them home. We're called to save people and have an impact upon the world that they live in. The difference between a social gospel of just going out and doing good deeds is where Christ is. And Christ is at the foundation. What I'm saying is we continue to preach the good news We continue to help people understand that they're separated from God, that they need that relationship with God. What I'm talking about is that disciple who has been saved. What does a disciple do? What does it mean for me to follow Christ? I'm saved. I've got that part down to preach the gospel. But how do I live that out in the world where I am? God has a concern for the least of these. One of my favorite sayings, we are redeemed to redeem others as redemptive agents. I've been redeemed. I have an obligation, a responsibility to redeem others and then to serve as a redemptive agent for the gospel. The Great Commission, it's a command given to us. It's a go command, it's go make disciples. In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And what I want to say in this topic of service in local missions, the city of Memphis is our Jerusalem. We have a responsibility and an opportunity to impact the city of Memphis.
0: Today's Mid South Viewpoint is brought to you by Novage. Just think about all the nasty stuff we breathe in every day. You know the dust, allergens, bacteria, pollen, pollution. You know the things in Memphis air. What are we breathing? Well, if you wash your hands and brush your teeth every day, then why aren't you cleaning your nose to clean out all that junk that's trapped up in there? Let me tell you about this product. If you suffer from allergies, sinus infections, or are worried about what you're breathing in, it's called Navage, N-A-V-A-G-E. What's Navage? Well, it's the world's only nose cleaner with powered suction. People that have suffered from lifelong allergies call Navage a complete game changer. They are breathing more clearly, sleeping better, snoring less and feeling a whole lot better. In fact, 90% of people who use Navage report feeling healthier. Now with cold and flu season just around the corner, why not make Navaj part of your daily health routine? experience what it's like to truly breathe better sleep deeper and feel healthier go ahead and visit navage.com that's navage.com or you can find navage at walgreens cvs rite aid bed bath and beyond and target navage n-a-v-a-g-e